We've come to the point in our worship where we get to stand together and read corporately the pericope, the portion of scripture that is going to be taught to us this day. We're going to be reading out of Acts 1, verses 12 through 26. Acts 1, 12 through 26. Please uh, prepare your hearts to be, receive the word of the Lord. Acts 1, 12 through 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all, that, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, uh, Akaldama, Akaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and... Let another take his office. So one of the men, <clears throat> so one of the men who have accompanied us during all that all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the days, the days uh, when he was to be taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forth two: Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said. You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. May the reading of God's word be blessed to your hearts. You may be seated. Are you the kind of person or are you, do you know somebody that's always a starter, never a finisher? Start, 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 new ideas, not so good at finishing. It's probably not even fair to say, do you know that kind of person? Because the reality is, I think that kind of describes all of us at different times. We have all these big ideas about things to start. In fact, it might not even just be big ideas or, or uh, you know, New Year's resolutions or anything like that. The, uh, they might be legitimately very good things to start, but we're just not so good at finishing. But the good news is we serve a God that is both a starter and a finisher. Our God is not that way. And in Acts, what we see is that we have this transition. Throughout the book of Acts, we have this transition between the old and the new. And really, 
that's probably not even the best way to describe it when we say old and new because that's, it's kind of a, an oversimplif uh, oversimplification. I think our tendency when we talk about old and new is to package things up and kind of say, okay, well, that's old and it's unnecessary. So that when we look at the old, we go, well, um, Christ did away with that. It's not needed anymore. Here's the new. This is what's really important. And so uh, by, by saying old and new, we end up focusing on the new really at the expense of the old. And I think the, the better way to look at it is we are looking at what Christ fulfilled and then what has been inaugurated. And so we see in this New Testament church age certain things that have taken place and that continue to go on as a result of the fulfillment and things that have ended um, as a result of the fulfillment as well. And so when we look in the book of Acts, what it's doing is it's unfolding for us the logistics of that transition. Based on what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection, he fulfilled much of what the Old Testament pointed to that then resulted in the ending of some things and the change, not, not the uh, ending or, or pushing it into the past that it's never going to take place again, but new things in a new and richer way. And in Acts, we get to see how that plays out. In other words, we're kind of seeing how the sausage is being made. We get to see God's process a little bit. If you're anything like me, there are many times in Scripture where you read stuff and you, and you just wonder, wow, I, you question things or you just wonder about, you speculate about things that Scripture just doesn't talk about how something played out and you kind of wish you knew because, uh, you know, if you were there, then you would just kind of know how those things happened. And, uh, you know, of course, Scripture has everything that we need for life and godliness, but what's neat is actually in the book of Acts, it does that very thing for us. It actually unfolds. We get to see, we have a front row seat, we get to see how this transition is taking place from, uh, from kind of that old or what it is that Jesus fulfilled and that no longer is going to continue forward and what is fulfilled is actually is going to sprout something new and healthy that's in a different way going forward. It's always important for us to remember that even though we are looking at uh, what's taking place and this idea of process, I'm using words like, uh, like process, but for God, God stands over time. He's not bound by time. He stands over all of history. And yet, for us, even though God is over time and is not, doesn't have those constraints, for us, everything is rolling out in a chronological sequence. It's happening in a particular order. And so God, in his design, in his process, is making these changes in that chronological sense. And so what I'm hoping to show you here is that what God started before he is continuing through the process that he has designed, and that, of course, we know that God is a finisher. And so from this vantage point of time, uh, specifically of this time that the apostles are in Jerusalem, this time that they have been told that they need to stay and to wait, we're going to look at what was necessary, according to Peter, and what is 
necessary. What was required to happen and what is required to happen both past and then in present. So I'm hoping that today, despite all the sickness and stuff that's going around, I'm hoping you're mentally agile today because we're going to move a little more fluidly through this text. We are looking specifically at Acts uh, chapter 1, verses 15 to 26. And I had PJ Reed uh, starting a few verses earlier, and I'll point out to you why. But we're going to move around this text a little bit. We're not just going to, 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 to go in a linear sense, right from top to bottom, but I'm hoping that you will stick with me and you'll be able to see why I'm going the way that I am and, and kind of how, how, how this is packaged together. Now, let's dive in here, and, and, and one of the things I want to point out, and if you've been here any length of time, you've probably heard uh, Pastor Nick uh, or you've heard me talk about how the authors of the scriptures frequently use literary clues. There are things within the Bible that they intentionally, or to use maybe a, a, a modern reference, that it's almost like Easter eggs that are in the language of Scripture and bear themselves out, particularly in the original languages. And then when you see those, you realize there is a pattern inside there and those patterns are completely intentional. We have that with us here today in this portion of Scripture in two different ways. And it's in the detail of the language. So, if you look at verse 16, this is what Peter says. Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. Now, I know i got to geek out just a little bit here, but if you'll stick with me, the phrase that Luke is using here, or, you know, or that's being translated, the phrase that is translated by the editors of the ESV to say, had to be fulfilled, is actually a single Greek word. And, that, and the, their choice to translate it as had to be fulfilled, there's nothing wrong with that. But... The word, it's helpful to know the actual Greek word itself because it is frequent, that word is frequently translated into English, it was necessary. So, if you think about this for just a moment, and you go, okay, well, the ESV translators said, chose to put, had to be fulfilled. I'm saying that, it, that that particular word is frequently uh, translated as it was necessary. So if you just you know put it in the past tense, um, it, or it is necessary. So if you put it in the past tense of it was necessary, as far as English, how much difference is there between had to be fulfilled and it was necessary? Negligible, right? I mean, what? I mean, pretty much synonymous. Had to be fulfilled. It was necessary. Doesn't seem to be any big deal at all. Well, I would say this: knowing the word itself that is being translated here had to be fulfilled, it actually is used a second time, several verses later, and it's used in verse 21. Now, uh, the, e, the NIV and the NASB in verse 21, you're not, if you have ESV, you're not going to see it, but in the NIV and the NASB in verse 
21, it begins, therefore, it is necessary. Because that word is also there. The ESV expresses that sentiment by sliding all the way down into verse 22. Do you see where it says, towards the end, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection? I'm I'm hoping you're following this detail here. So the way that the ESV translators have chosen to communicate that same word is that they must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So again, I would say a word that is frequently translated, it is necessary. How different is that from must, as far as English, really not that much difference. You can see why they chose what they chose. This is my point, is that if you look at the one-for-one English change, you know, change from the Greek to the English, it doesn't seem like there's anything noticeable. But if you realize that the author is intentionally using the same word, and if you replace both with the it was necessary, then what you see here is a repetition. You have, in verse 16, brothers, it was necessary, and then you have what was necessary after that, and then you go down to verse 21, and then it says, therefore, it is necessary. So what I'm trying to point out here is that this particular portion of Scripture from verses 15 to the end of the chapter at verse 26 actually breaks into two pretty even parts. 15 to 20 has this discussion about what Peter is saying was necessary, and then there is the second half about something about uh, that Peter is saying that is necessary. We have a was necessary and we have an is necessary. There's actually a symmetry to this passage of Scripture. And so then the natural progression, if you're looking at this and you say, okay, well, Peter is saying that something was necessary and then he's saying in another portion that something is necessary, then the natural question is, okay, well, then what's the comparison What's the contrast? What is it that's necessary? Or what was it that was necessary? And what is it that is necessary from their perspective? Well, I want to again show you a little pattern. This is, this is, uh, uh, this is fun. I mean, it, so if you look back at the last thing that we closed with in the previous sermon in Acts, it was in verse 14. It was, or I'm sorry, in um, verse starting in verse 13, it is a list of the 11 apostles, right? It it is a detailed list of the 11 that were present at this particular um, event. Verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And then it goes on to list the 11 apostles. So, When you realize what's taking place, you have a list or a numbering of the 11 apostles. Now look at verse 17. Now this is in context to what took place with Judas. And in verse 17 it says, for he was numbered among us. So we have the number of the 11, or the 11 being numbered. Then we have in verse 17, relating to Judas, for he was numbered among them. Then, when you look down to 26, as it relates to Matthias, at the end of this passage, it says, and they cast lots for them, 
and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, I know that's a lot of kind of fine detail. Um, That's a lot of kind of mental work, but I'm hoping that you appreciate the, the picture that the author is giving us here, that there actually is a framework. So when you put all of those things together, what you have is that the apostles at this moment where they are required to stay and to wait in Jerusalem, they have business that they have to tend to. They're there. The last thing we saw is that they returned to the upper room and they devoted themselves to prayer. But there is business that has to be done, and that business has to do with uh, the apostles, the numbering of the apostles, and that something was necessary and that something is necessary. And all of that leads to what Peter does in verse 15. That framework and that work that needs to be done, numbering of apostles, something was necessary, is necessary, what started as a listing of the 11 and then ends with a a comment about the numbering of, Messiah, of, of Matthias with the 11, we have Paul, uh, Peter standing up and bringing up this point of order. So with all that backdrop now, we have Peter saying, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. Brothers, it was necessary. And what is it that had to be fulfilled? What is it in this first half of the symmetry, what is it that was necessary based on what Peter was saying? And whatever it was, this is what we know. It was predicted by the Holy Spirit, that it came through the mouth of David, and that it was concerning Judas. That's right there in verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David and concerning Judas. All right, so what was it that must, uh, that was necessary? Well, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what does David then have to say about Judas? Well, Peter helps us out because he actually tells us in verse 20. So if you look down at Acts 120, it says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. When I was going through the Gospel of Mark and we got to the Passion narrative and, and, you know, those days leading up to Jesus' humiliation and then ultimately his crucifixion, You know, there were a number of Old Testament prophecies that pointed to Judas's betrayal. And then there, of course, is the explicit account of his betrayal. There were allusions in the Old Testament that pointed to the betrayal of Jesus. But this particular quote out of this psalm does not have to do with Judas's betrayal of Jesus. It actually has to do with his judgment. So, what Peter is saying is that what was necessary was that there must be judgment on Judas for his betrayal. The psalm that uh, Peter is quoting here, where he says that, actually, 
is Psalm 69. And any time there is a quote in the New Testament, or for that matter, even it, uh, when the New Testament quotes the Old, or for that matter, when the Old Testament quotes the Old, it is always crucial that you look to see what was the context of the quote. What was its original context? Don't just take the quote and look at it in the context it's being used. So in this case, in Acts chapter 1, it's important to always look back and go, okay, well, what is the baggage that that quote brings with it out of the Psalms? So Peter uses this quote. That quote comes from Psalm 69. And Psalm 69 is a lament against the enemies of God plural, the enemies of God, and specifically in this, uh, in this psalm and, the, and in David proclaiming uh, a lament against these enemies, he names the enemy uh, those that gave sour wine to drink. And so we see this connection. There's a messianic connection. We see that this is an ongoing and this like detailed lament against God's enemies a call for judgment. And then I'll even kind of point out verse 26 in Psalm 69, for it says, so think about this for a second. David is calling for um, judgment against a particular group. And in verse 26, it says, for they persecute him whom you have struck down. And they recount the pain of those you have wounded. And if you think about that for a minute, if you don't know the story of Christ, that almost doesn't make any sense. Why would there be a lament? Why would there be a call for judgment by God against somebody that God has struck down? For they persecute him whom you have struck down. And he's calling for judgment against those uh, that recount the pain of those you have wounded. But we know the story of Christ and because we know that backdrop, we can look at that and go, okay, this is tied to the Messiah. Because, yes, it is all within God's will that Jesus Christ was going to be crucified and that he was going to die. And we know from Mark 14, 21, it says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And so there's that sense that, yes, this is all under God's good providence and his sovereign will that this is going to take place, but woe to that man by whom it comes. And that is associated with this same psalm where in verse 25 it says, May their camp be a desolation, let no one dwell in their tents. Peter is essentially leveraging the full weight of the judgment of this psalm, of Psalm 69, of everything that David is saying in his call for judgment against the enemies of God. He is leveraging the weight of all of that against Judas. He is bringing that to bear, that because of Judas's betrayal, it was necessary that this judgment take place against one of them that was numbered among the apostles. And how did that bear itself out? Well, we know that um, 
Judas went to the chief priests. They gave him 30 pieces of silver to perpetrate, to carry out that betrayal. And according to Matthew 27, he acknowledged that he betrayed innocent blood. And what did he do? He went to the temple and he threw the the 30 pieces of silver into the temple and he went and he hanged himself. Now, presumably, the, um, the chief priest then took that money and they purchased this lot of land, this plot, this lot, where Judas, where, where we get the account in, uh, chapter one, uh, in Acts chapter 1, where it says, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and his bowels gushed out. So what we can assume took place is that the chief priest took that money, they went and bought this field where Judas hung himself and where this gruesome suicidal scene took place, and they bought that and perhaps even put it in his name, put it in Judas's name, but it was, they, they did not claim the money. They did not want the money. And the reason they didn't want the money is because they knew that it was blood money. And this is why it became known as Akeldama, that is the field of blood. So all of, in fact, right there in verse 19, it says that all of Jerusalem knew it. So Luke, in authoring this, he actually does the reader a favor because at that particular time, all of them knew it. Everyone in Jerusalem knew what uh, Judas had done, how he had died. But he goes out of his way to describe it here and say that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, which is field of blood. And that's not because um, of the gruesome or bloody way that uh, Judas died, but because it was purchased with blood money. So you can see here that as spoken by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David, it was necessary that he bore the punishment and that, and that um, the psalm that David is, is referring back to where it says, may his camp be desolate and there be no one to dwell in it, we now have that quite literally being a plot of land where Judas hung himself where he fell, his bowels gushed out, it's purchased and turned into a cemetery for foreigners. So it is, by definition, desolate, and it is a place where no one will dwell. So there's a very literal um, fulfillment of what it is that, that Peter said must take place. And then if you look in verse 20 there, you see the and. And so we have actually two different psalms that Peter ends up quoting. After he says, may his camp be desolate and there be no one to dwell in it, we have and. And then he quotes another psalm. Let another take his office. So this is why I was saying I think it's particularly helpful what the NIV and the uh, New American Standard Bible have done right here is because in verse 21 in those translations, they immediately put what the Greek word is right there. They immediately put, therefore, it is necessary uh, to choose. So, so uh, right on the heels of what Peter is saying is necessary, 
or of the quotation Peter uses of the psalm, they say, therefore, it is necessary. So again, if Peter is quoting from another psalm, what do we need to do? We need to look back and see, all right, so what is the context? What do we know about this particular quote? We know that it is coming from Psalm 109 and specifically from verse 8. And again, this, um, this psalm is an individual psalm of lament that details out the judgment that needs to take place. There's one difference in this particular psalm, and it's what Peter has pointed out, is that he says, let another take his office. So in other words, within this judgment, so it was necessary that all of this judgment was brought to bear on Judas, and it is subsequently necessary that someone else take his office. So it kind of begs the question, why does there need to be someone to take the office? So if, we, if, we, if you're following and you're saying, yeah, I, I'm with you, I, I see what you're saying, there, there was the 11 listed, there are the 11 later at the end of this, there's the it was necessary, there's the it is necessary. So what is it that makes this replacement of Judas necessary. It's an integral part based on the way that Peter is using that Psalm 109, the, the way that he is leveraging that, it ties the judgment that Judas, is, that Judas endures with the need to actually replace him. So why is that necessary? I mean, couldn't God still do everything that he wants to do with the remaining 11? Is it just that there's so much work to be done, we got to make sure we get another set of hands in there because there's a, a heavy load to carry. And of course, be that as it may, that, that, that's certainly not the case at all. It's because our God is a God of the details. Our God is a God of the details. What he started in the Old Testament, the design that God created in the Old Testament needs to continue. He is seeing through down to the very end. In other words, this whole idea of the 12, or that he is going to form a people to call a people to himself in the Old Testament based on the 12 tribes, that was God's infrastructure. He designed it. He could have done whatever. He's God. That was his design. This is the process that God chose was to call a people to himself based on those 12 tribes. And then the logistics now are what we are here to see. We actually get a a peek behind the curtain of what takes place when the judgment is that was necessary was poured out on Judas. Now they must replace his position with somebody else. And it doesn't require, if for God's infrastructure, for the new church that he is going to create, he does not need 12 ethnic representatives. He needs 12 apostles. In God, God designed the structure, and it was based on 12 representatives. And when we look at the original 12 representatives, those 12 tribes, and the fact that God was calling a people to himself, how well did that work out? Not well at all. He had those, those patriarchs, we have the 12 tribes, and then the chosen people that result from that design end up becoming so corrupt 
that it's those very people that are the ones that crucify Christ. But it's not the design that was flawed. It was the people that were flawed. God's design continues to be what he chooses to use at this particular time. Therefore, Jesus comes down, the Son of God comes down, demonstrates that he himself is the true Israel and puts back into play God's design. These 12 representatives. These 12 representatives are going to be the foundation of the new people that he is creating, a new people under a new covenant. In Hebrews 11 verse 10, it's talking, uh, it's talking about Abraham when he says, uh, when it says, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. So are you picturing this? God is the designer and the builder. He's got a foundation, a particular foundation. He says, this is what my foundation is going to be. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, you are fellow citizens. So this is talking about those of us within the church, God's children. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And then when you just keep right on moving all the way to the end, we get to Revelation 21, verse 14, and it says, And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This is God's design. The 12 representatives in the Old Testament being the 12 tribes, are now being reconstituted in a new way, not in ethnic Israel, but with 12 apostles of God's choosing to establish and to reconstitute the system, the design, the process that he had in place to complete his perfect plan. Of course, with Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. So, we see that Jesus is the cornerstone. We have this need, what is necessary for them at this time, the business they must tend to while they're there in Jerusalem before they leave. They have got to replace him because they need 12 apostles that are going to be the foundation of this new people under a new covenant. So you can imagine then that if this design is God's design, and that if it is so important to him that he says that even when one of them turns out to be a, a, a betrayer and it was necessary for that man, for Judas Iscariot, to endure punishment, to endure judgment for his actions, then how seriously do you suppose God takes the replacement of that man? This idea of apostleship, of their being apostles, is a very serious business. And so there are qualifications that are laid out. It's right there. And I think it's important for me to comment on this because it is apparent right here there are no apostles today. There is no one that gets to claim, well, there's this similarity in what I do to what the apostles did during that time. Therefore, I too have this office of apostleship, and I should have this title of apostleship. 
And I want to point out three things that are unique to being apostles. The first being is that every apostle, everyone called by God to be his representative, has had some kind of a divine encounter, some kind of a divine personal encounter with God. In fact, in the Old Testament, Adam, Noah, Moses, Joshua, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of them had a personal divine encounter with God. In fact, the phrases that are used in the Old Testament relating to these men is one was in the throne room of God, one walked with God, one stood in the council of God. These apostles here, they witnessed the baptism and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is there anybody today that is really interested in trying to lay claim to the fact that, uh, that they have had this kind of divine encounter? Second, the unique role of the apostles was to serve as the foundation of the church. I already pointed to the fact that, um, that the apostles serve as the foundation And going back to Ephesians chapter 2 and starting there partway through verse 19, it says, But you are fellow citizens and the saints of the members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the whole idea is that they are the foundation. God is not continuing to grow the foundation. God is growing the house. God is building the structure based on the foundation. In fact, in 1 Peter 2.5, it says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. The church, brothers and sisters in Christ, are being built up as a spiritual house. In, in other words, it's being, on, it's being built up as a spiritual house on the foundation, which is already complete. The other thing I want to point out as well is that this is the only place that we ever see a replacement of an apostle. When you go forward to Acts chapter 12, we get, to, we get a peek into um, the martyrdom of James. You know, kind of that inner circle, Peter, James, and John. James gets martyred. He gets killed for the name of Christ. They do not replace James once he's killed. And then, of course, other apostles continue to die, and there is no replacement. You'll read nowhere else of any replacement of apostles other than in this place in Scripture. That's because this is unique. He is replaced because there needed to be 12 and no more for the foundation of the building of the church. There are no modern-day apostles. There, there are, there's no succession of apostles, as the Roman Catholic Church would proclaim. Instead, there are three qualifications to be an apostle. You have to have been an engaged participant in the ministry. In fact, if you just look right there in Acts 1, verse 21, it says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time 
that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. In other words, he's been there the whole time. He's been there when Jesus has come and gone. He's been an integral part of the ministry. Second, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up. So it has to have been somebody that was with us and engaged in Christ's ministry. Second, he has to have been engaged in the ministry from the time of baptism to the time that Christ was resurrected. And then the last piece is he has to be chosen by God. And that's what we end up seeing there down in verse 26 with this whole casting of Lot's business. And so what ends up happening is we get these two guys. We get Joseph called Barsabbas. And we get, he's got a whole bunch of names, Joseph called Barsabbas and who was called Justice. And then we have Matthias. So we have Joseph and we have Matthias as our two options. Each of them, as far as the other apostles could tell, the other 11, can see that they fit the qualifications of the first two, right? They already know. They've been there, so they know, hey, these guys were there engaged in Christ's ministry, and they've been there during this entire time period, so there's only one last thing left to figure out. And what's the last step? Which one does God choose? And so that's why they go about this practice, uh, which was prevalent at that time, of casting lots. And then we see that God does, in fact, make his choice. I want to, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to wrap this up, and I, I just want to make three points of application. The first I have to ask, as far as this whole idea of, of being numbered, are you numbered in God's family? Can you, is your name in the Lamb's book of life? Are you going to be marked for salvation from God's justice on the last day? Because in this passage here that we're looking at, the first part of that kind of symmetrical breakdown is to show that what was necessary is that Judas bore the full weight of the judgment for his evil deeds and for his sin. In other words, God is a judge. God is going to return on, Christ is going to be on the judgment seat, and every sin is going to be answered for. The only question is, is Christ answering for your sins, or are you going to try to answer for your sins? The fact that you're here in church isn't going to really do you any favors. Judas was in, Judas was chosen by Jesus to spend time with him. Judas was right there throughout his entire ministry. Judas was right there hearing direct teaching by Jesus. Judas sat at the feet of Jesus to get the individual personalized teaching that was set aside just for the apostles. Judas walked with Jesus after his ministry down to Jerusalem. Judas with his own eyes, watched Jesus heal the sick and the lame. Judas watched Jesus raise people from the dead. And Judas was cursed by God. So we must not go through our little mental list and go, well, you know, I do read my Bible, I do pray. If things really get bad, I, I turn to God. Um, I've done this, I've done that. None of those things, you know. If you think about it, whatever resume you think that you can produce, 
I'm guessing Judas has a stronger resume than you. However, even though no amount of church attendance or Bible reading or prayer or good deeds are going to save, we know that salvation is in Christ alone because Judas didn't have that. He didn't have the salvation that comes through Christ alone. Second, it's sad but true. There are legitimately evil people that are in positions of power inside the church. That's a fact. There are legitimately evil people inside churches that bear the name Bible, Christian, covenant on their sign out on the street. There are bully, unfaithful, manipulative men in positions of power inside the church. But I think we need to remember a couple of things. First of all, Judas was selected by Jesus to serve his purpose. This is None of this is out of God's control. And so they are in the position that God has given them to be in, and everything in Judas's life that, uh, or the betrayal that he ended up perpetrating was ultimately turned to God's glory. It was used for God's glory. So it's important for us to remember that even though that is a reality that, these, that there are sinful men in positions of power within the church, that none of this is outside of God's control and that he is going to use it to his glory. And we can also remember, but woe to the men by whom that glory is achieved. God, God will not be mocked just as it was necessary for Judas to bear the weight of the punishment that his actions deserved. So these men, too, are going to bear the punishment that their actions deserve. The third thing that I want to point out is that our God is, he has a process and he is a finisher. This is all going according to plan. So when we look at these things, it, it, in a sense, you know, sometimes people, you know, they'll look at a microscope and, and they'll see the intricacies of, of how life works. And, um, and, and if they have that kind of scientific knowledge, they can look at those things and just be utterly amazed at how God is working out and fine-tuning down to the smallest molecule. He's executing his plan. And what I'm saying is that we are getting a taste of that right here in Acts chapter 1 because he's showing us that he has had a plan to have these 12 representatives through the tribes, and then there's a change, a fuller, a richer development because of the fulfillment that took place through Christ and so there had to be a replacement. And so he's showing us, hey, I have a process. God is following his own process. It is perfect what, is he, what he's doing. And Judas being a part of it is just an object lesson. What did Judas do right here in verse 25? To take, uh, so they were choosing Matthias to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. See, there is a process. God is working out his plan. Judas is the one that turned aside. You cannot turn aside. To use a, 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 a sports phrase that gets used a lot today, trust the process. Trust the process. 
God is at work. You cannot, you must not turn aside. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, but God's firm foundation, that's what we've been looking at, right? This foundation, that's the process, is this foundation that he created. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. God has established the foundation. He knows who are his. And in this inaugurated kingdom, this, this we, we, we're living, you know, as I mentioned before, the whole between the clouds idea, it's, we're in the already, but, but, but the not yet. This is the life that we have to live here. You can declare along with Paul, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Trust the process. What you have been through was necessary. What you are currently going through, it is necessary. You have to trust God's plan and to see it through to the end. Do not turn aside by any means necessary. Let's pray. Lord, when we look at your scriptures, there's so much detail there. There's so many things going on. We see what's going on with the languages. It can be easily overwhelming. Forgive us, Lord, for our finite and simple minds, for being so easily distracted, for being lost so quickly. But, Lord, continue to feed us the nuggets. Help us to see it. Give us a clearer view of your holy scriptures so that we can have greater confidence in what it is that you're working out in your plan and in our lives specifically. Guard us from the evil one, Lord. Help us not to turn aside. Lord, and by any means necessary to depart from iniquity and to fulfill the plan that you have for us in spreading the gospel and taking and being witnesses to the resurrection of Christ to a hungry, dying, fallen world. In Christ's name, amen.